Once again this morning we turn to the Gospel of Luke chapter 6. And in our study of this Gospel we pick up with verse 27 of chapter 6. And I'll be reading through verse 36. But I say to you who hear, love your enemies. Do good to those who hate you. Bless those who curse you. Pray for those who mistreat you. Whoever hits you on the cheek, offer him the other one also. And whoever takes away your coat, do not withhold your shirt from him either. Give to everyone who asks of you, and whoever takes away what is yours, do not demand it back. Treat others the same way you want them to treat you. If you love those who love you, what credit is that to you? For even sinners love those who love them. If you do good to those who do good to you, what credit is that to you? For even sinners do the same. If you lend to those from whom you expect to receive, what credit is that to you? Even sinners lend to sinners in order to receive back the same amount. But love your enemies, and do good, and lend, expecting nothing in return. And your reward will be great, and you will be sons of the Most High, for he himself is kind to ungrateful and evil men. Be merciful, just as your Father is merciful. Father, we read passages like this throughout your word, and our response is one of wonder. We wonder how it's possible to obey these things. But then we remember We are those who are indwelt by the Spirit of God. And you are able to empower us to do those things which do not come naturally. Use your word today, Father, to accomplish that work in us. For Christ's sake and for our good and for the good of the kingdom. Amen. Some of you will be familiar with the name Phil Donahue. He hasn't been around in a while. I don't know what he's doing these days. But he used to be quite a big deal. He was, um, you know, he had a talk show and his white hair made him very distinct. He wrote an autobiography. I'm not sure exactly what was noteworthy about his own life. I don't know how you can fill an autobiography with the fact that you asked questions to other important people. But he he did. It's called Donahue, My Own Story. And within that autobiography, and I'm not sure what the context was, but he actually makes a theological argument 
It's a horrible theological argument. But he talks theology in this autobiography. He actually indicts God the Father for sending his son and not himself to the cross. Donahue doesn't like that. He doesn't think that's fair. He says this, if God the Father is so all-loving, why didn't he come down and go to Calvary? Then Jesus could have said, this is my Father in whom I am well-pleased. How could an all-knowing, all-loving God allow his son to be murdered on a cross in order that he might redeem my sins? Donahue isn't saying anything new. Other people said this long before he did. It's an ancient blasphemy, in fact, that falls short in many ways. Most seriously, it displays an ignorance of the Trinity. Father, Son, Holy Spirit. The Trinity is not comprised of three different gods. Jesus is God. The Spirit is God. The Father is God. And they are co-eternal and co-equal, possessing a dynamic unity of thought and purpose in which there is no disagreement. The Father did not tell the Son, go, die for the sins of the world, and Jesus did not respond, well, I'd really rather not. Hey, Dad, why don't you go and do it if you want it done? That's not what happened. The Father and the Son and the Holy Spirit agreed together in the council of the Trinity that they would redeem a people for God's own possession. And they decreed that each person of the Trinity, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit, would have specific roles in the outworking of that purpose. And so the decision that the Son be sent to die for our sins was not a decision of the Father alone. It was the work and the decision and the decree of the Father and the Son and the Holy Spirit. We must understand that the sending of the Son was the ultimate Trinitarian gift a gift of mutually costly love. We are Trinitarians, but we are not as Trinitarian as we ought to be. You read through the scripture, and you see Paul, for instance, but the other writers of the scripture as well, being Trinitarian in all that they say when they preach, they're Trinitarian. When they pray, they are Trinitarian. When they write, they are Trinitarian. We have a hard time with that because, you know, unless, well, <laughs> I was going to say something I probably will be better off not saying. So we'll go the other way. If you're like me, you can only do one thing at a time. And so I'm just thinking about, all right, here's what Jesus did. Isn't that amazing? Here's what the Father did. Isn't that glorious? Here's what the Spirit is doing. How grateful I am for his work. 
but as we even as we worship together our worship needs to be consciously trinitarian it is through the songs that we sing it is through the prayers that we pray to the father in the name of the son by the power of the holy spirit The understanding of these things is what makes the opening line of John 3.16 so resonant with us. For God so loved the world that he gave his son. The father could make no greater, more costly sacrifice, not even the sending of himself. Because his son and he are one. The unqualified statement of Scripture is that God is love. That is why he could send his son to be sacrificed upon a cross to redeem my sins. When Jesus came, he was the love of God incarnate. If we want to understand God's love, we've got to look then at Jesus, who came to show us who God is. He is the image of God. He came to show us the Father. Indeed, Jesus said that no one could fulfill the whole law if he could, uh, or that one could fulfill the whole law if he could just love God. So what's our problem? Well, it's not just love God. It's love God with all your heart, all your soul, all your mind, all your strength. And if that is the standard, there is not one of us sitting in this room who has done it. We're also to love our neighbor as ourselves. and We haven't done so good with that either. But Jesus went even farther because he not only loved his neighbors as himself, he loved his enemies as himself. And now he tells us, if you're going to name my name, then you need to do the same thing. And this is something we need to hear. One of the things Jesus does in this passage, as we're going to see, is that he takes certain examples that would have been very relevant to his first century Palestinian cultural situation. Being slapped on the cheek, having to give someone your cloak. In our day, these things still apply, but in different ways. When we look at the situation that we find ourselves in today, in which our society is broken down into sides. We're told, even by those who represent Christ, or say they do, that we have a lot of enemies. We have a lot of enemies. And it seems like everybody wants us to know that. And remember it. 
Let me just remind us of something. We may have enemies because other people consider us to be their enemies. We ought not have enemies because we consider them to be enemies. They are lost people who need the gospel. They are dead people who need to be brought to life. We can hate sin, but we can't hate people. We need to love them with the gospel. And so even as Jesus says, love your enemies, he's he's communicating a reality. We will have enemies, but we ought to have enemies because the people see Christ in us. And as Jesus says, if they hate me, they're going to hate you. Okay. I can't stop them from putting themselves in the position of my enemy. But I don't have to treat them that way. This is what Jesus is telling us here. I'm giving you the, right, the, 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 the conclusion here at the beginning. Love your enemies. If you're a Republican, love Democrats. If you're a Democrat, love Republicans. Love homosexuals. Love the transgender. Love those who you may think are trying to destroy this country. Love those who burn down cities. And love those who invade the capital. Love your neighbor who plays his music too loud. Love those that the voices on the radio are telling you to hate. Because you're a Christian. Because you name the name of Christ. And he says so. Do you need any more than that? Jesus says so. If you're a Christian, if you name the name of Christ, you have no choice. It's a matter of obedience. It's not a matter of whether you want to or not. It's not a matter of whether you're comfortable with it or not. Discipleship is not comfortable. Discipleship is difficult. That's why Jesus, here, in Luke 6, as he speaks directly to his disciples, as we saw last week, is telling them these things. You see this in the upper room when after washing the disciples' feet, Jesus lovingly reaches out to Judas, whose heart was already set on murderous betrayal. Even then, Jesus is reaching out to Judas by quoting Psalm 41.9, He who ate my bread has lifted up his heel against me. A reference in the context in which David wrote of Ahithophel who betrayed David and then committed suicide. A slight parallel you might pick up on there. 
Evidently, the Savior's voice broke with emotion as he further explained what he meant because John records in chapter 13, verse 21, that after saying these things, Jesus was troubled in spirit and testified, truly, truly, I say to you, one of you will betray me. This is why it's, it's important that when we read Scripture, we make the effort to try to put ourselves there. Because if you're just reading the words on the page, then after, these, after saying these things, Jesus troubled in his spirit and testified, truly, truly, I say to you, one of you will betray me. And on you go. And you never understand what's really going on. You don't get the emotional impact of that statement. As Jesus speaks to this one whom he chose, who has walked with him for years, and who is now becoming the instrument of his execution. But Jesus' emotion there was not for himself, but over the loss of Judas and all the horror that awaited him. And then came the summit of Jesus' attempted rapprochement as amid the disciples' self-questionings, he dips a morsel of food and gave it to Judas. In the Palestinian culture, to do that, to lift a morsel of food from the table, dip it in the common dish, and then offer it to another, was a gesture of special friendship. And Jesus did that in regard to Judas. And when he did that, he was saying, in effect, Judas, I know what you're up to, but here is my friendship. Here is my heart. All you have to do is take it. But Judas slammed the door shut. And John records right after that, it was night. Okay. It was night. Why are you telling me what the clock says? As you read that passage, you understand John's not just talking about the fact that the sun has set. It's not only that night has come upon Israel. The night has set in Judah's heart. It was eternal night in Judah's soul. And in that awesome event, Jesus dramatizes this new law of love, a call to love one's enemies. There had never been anything like it. Jesus capsulized this in the famous statement of John 13, a new commandment I give to you, that you love one another just as I have loved you, you also are to love one another. In retrospect, the disciples would see this love command and they would see that it was explained by Jesus washing their feet and then reaching out to his enemy. Certainly that's 
the way John is constructing that story in his gospel. This is why the church's new law for dealing with each other and even with one's enemies, which is exactly what Jesus did in the next few hours when he hung on the cross with his arms outstretched as he died for the ungodly and for sinners and for his enemies. This is what the church embraced, this understanding. It's what Paul describes in Romans 5. While we were weak at the right time, Christ died for whom? The ungodly. Enemies. God shows his love for us and that while we were still sinners, enemies, God, Christ died for us. He specifically says it in verse 10. If while we were enemies, we were reconciled to God through the death of his son, much more now that we are reconciled, we shall be saved by his life. Jesus loved us not only when we were indifferent to him, but when we were his enemies. Even if we didn't see ourselves that way, that was the reality. It's the reality of the condition of every unbeliever, whether they know it or not. Jesus loved us when we did not deserve it. And not only when we did not deserve it, he loved us when we deserved the opposite of his love. When we deserved condemnation and judgment and justice. As we see in chapter 6, verses 27 through 36, at the beginning of his ministry, with the newly called twelve standing before him, Jesus announced a new law, calling his followers to love as he loves an impossible task apart from Christ. Part of the Sermon on the Plain, which is what we're looking at, this new love ethic was announced to the disciples while their spiritual landscape was still being rocked from the four Beatitudes which Christ has just laid upon them. Beatitudes that pronounced a blessing on poverty Hunger, sorrow, rejection. They're still trying to get that in their minds. And then Jesus follows up immediately with, hey, and don't forget, love your enemies. (laughs) I cannot even imagine what the disciples we're going through, trying to deal with all of that at once. Well, looking his disciples right in the eye, Jesus declares this new ethic, verses 27 and 28. I say to you who hear, love your enemies, do good to those who hate you, bless those who curse you, pray for those who mistreat you. An unnatural thing. There were several words for love in the Greek language, as you might know. Jesus does not here command storge, natural affection. He does not command eros, romantic love. He does not command philia, the love of friendship. 
He demands here agape love. Such a love is not motivated by the merit of the one who is loved. Those other loves that I mentioned come quite naturally. You can fall into eros. But agape love supersedes natural inclinations. Agape love goes forth when that's not the natural thing to do. It's a deliberate act of the will. It is love by choice. This kind of love is deep and continuous and growing and ever-renewing. It is an activity of the will superintended by the Holy Spirit. Agape love says, I will love this person because by God's grace I choose to love this person. And this call of Christ to his disciples and to us to ascend to these unnatural heights of agape in loving our enemies is defined by Jesus' commands in this passage. He, he, he demands that we perform unnatural deeds. Do good to those who hate you. Imagine someone who hates you, then think of doing something nice for them. That's an unnatural exercise. That's not something that fills you with you know, warm fuzzies. I love this person, and it's just a joy for me to go and do something nice for them. That's certainly not what Jesus is talking about. Jesus is talking about something that we would naturally shy away from. Boy, this is going to be uncomfortable. This is going to be awkward. This person hates me, and I'm going to go over with a tray of brownies. And I have no idea how they're going to respond to that. Because it will be unnatural for them, too. But it can and it must be done. He demands that we speak unnatural words. Bless those who curse you. This idea has no antecedent in biblical literature. This is the first time this concept appears The Essenes, in fact, a a Jewish sect in the time of Jesus, were encouraged to curse those who did not join them. You read some of the rabbinic literature. You you read about what the Pharisees were like, and this this was it. You curse those who curse you. Jesus says just the opposite. Says something that disciples had never heard before. Bless those who curse you. Someone pours vile abuse on you, you respond with a heartfelt blessing. Jesus demands that we utter unnatural prayers. Pray for those who abuse you, who mistreat you. Praise God, it is impossible to truly pray for someone and hate them at the same time. You can do that if your prayers are just kind of going through the motions. 
you don't really mean what you're saying. You just read this. So, well, I guess I should mouth the words. But if your heart is such that you have truly come to desire the good of that one who hates you, that one who mistreats you actively, then you can do that. And it will keep you from hating them in return. You can't ask God's blessing upon someone while in the back of your mind hoping that he actually throws the lightning down. The command to love our enemies is a call to unnatural deeds, unnatural words, unnatural prayer. It's a command then for supernatural love. Is there any hope for us? Can we possibly do this? Well, the answer is yes, we can. Verse 29 and 31, we read this. Whoever hits you on the cheek, offer him the other also. And whoever takes away your coat, do not withhold your shirt from him either. Conventional responses to these kinds of indignities took two basic patterns. The raw pagan response was to pay back such actions tenfold. You slap me, I'll break your neck. You take my shirt, I'll chop off your hand. Many people today feel the same way. The ancient Hebrew response was a vast improvement upon the cultures around them. It was lex talionis, the law of retaliation. And many hear those Old Testament passages and they recoil from them. They believe them to be savage and barbaric when in reality... The law of retaliation, lex talionis, was something quite unusual. Far from being barbaric, it was a law that placed limitations on retaliation. It limited retaliation to an equitable penalty. Life for life, eye for eye, tooth for tooth, hand for hand, foot for foot, burn for burn, wound for wound, stripe for stripe. You slap me, I'll break your neck, doesn't fit into that. This is a civilizing principle that God placed into his law. If that was followed in our own day, it would go a long way to help restore fairness and justice in our litigious society where everybody's always complaining that either this is too severe or this is too lenient. But Jesus went far beyond those conventions. He called us to turn the other cheek and to give to all who ask. It was Jesus then abrogating all exercise of personal defense and right to personal property? No, he's not. Rather, he's demanding a loving attitude that is not vengeful, but is generous and giving. Now, the slap to one's face, as you may know, is not describing an assault. Most assume that when they simply read the passage, but it refers not to an assault, but to an insult. 
It describes an insulting blow by someone who takes exception to the disciples' allegiance to Christ. In such a situation, the disciple is not to retaliate. Similarly, in reference to one's possession, it is one's spirit or attitude that is important. Leon Morris explains it this way. If Christians took this one absolutely literally, there would soon be a class of saintly paupers owning nothing, and another class of prosperous idlers and thieves. It is not this that Jesus is seeking, but a readiness among his followers to give and give and give. There are those who look at some of the things Jesus says and say, well, Jesus is calling every one of his disciples to give away everything they have which you're free to do if you choose. But what's going to happen then? You'll never have anything to give away again. And you will become a burden to others who will need to support you in some form. That's not what Jesus is talking about. Jesus is talking about a willingness to give. He's talking about generosity talking about living with open hands, even when those who come to us for help are not the kind of people who would help us if we had gone to them. Love for possessions should never keep a Christian from giving. Love must be ready to give everything or have it taken away if need be. Love must decide when to give and when to withhold. The ultimate expression of Jesus' teaching is here the so-called golden rule of verse 31. Treat others the same way you want them to treat you. Now some have pointed out correctly that there were others before Jesus who said similar things. But what they often fail to note is that there is a significant difference between what others said and what Jesus is saying here. And that significant difference is this. Almost all pre-Christian formulations of this rule are negative. They put it this way. Do not do to others what you do not want done to yourself. But it's significant that Jesus commands his followers to engage in the positive act of doing to others what you would like to have done to yourself. This is how you are to treat all people, regardless of how they treat you. This is how you are to treat your enemies, Jesus says. Once again, this unnatural, unconventional, agape love. And once again, we ask, is this possible? After the collapse of the Berlin Wall in 1989. It's amazing it was that long ago, isn't it? After the collapse of the wall, no person in all of East Germany was despised more than the former communist dictator, Erich Honecker. He had been stripped of all his offices. Everybody hated him. The Communist Party rejected him, kicked him out of his villa. The new government refused him and his wife new housing. Honecker 
and his wife ended up homeless and destitute. This is the guy that ran East Germany. Then comes along a pastor, Pastor Hugh Homer. He was the director of a Christian aid center in northern Berlin. And he was made aware of the Honecker situation, and he felt it would be wrong to give them a room meant for even needier people. So his solution was to take the former dictator and his wife into his own home with his own family. Honecker's wife, Margot, had ruled the East German educational system for the previous 26 years. Eight of Pastor Homer's 10 children had been turned down for higher education due to Honecker's policies, which discriminated against Christians. Now the Homers were caring for their personal enemy, the most hated man in Germany. This was so unnatural, so unconventional, so Christ-like. By the grace of God, that family loved their enemies, did good to them, blessed them, prayed for them, turned the other cheek, gave their enemies their own cloak, their home, did to the Hanukkahs what they wished the Hanukkahs would have done to them. Jesus went on to explain his new ethic by contrasting it with the reciprocal ethic of sinners Verses 32 and 34, he says, If you love those who love you, what credit is that to you? Even sinners love those who love them. If you do good to those who do good to you, what credit is that to you? Even sinners do the same. If you lend to those from whom you expect to receive, what credit is that to you? Even sinners lend to sinners in order to receive back the same amount. So Jesus discourages any kind of self-congratulation for reciprocal morality. We love people who love us. Big deal. So did Hitler. He loved his dog. What a guy. So did Stalin. So did Mao. There's no credit for natural love. There is eternal credit for the kind of love Jesus is commanding. Verse 35, but love your enemies and do good and lend, expecting nothing in return, and your reward will be great and you will be sons of the Most High. For he himself, for he himself is kind to ungrateful and evil men. And I can testify to that because he's been kind to me. And I have been ungrateful and evil. Jesus gives two emphases to the reward he promises. First, it will be great. 
literally much. And Jesus meant what he said. Now, are we mercenary or selfish if we love our enemies with an eye to reward? Not necessarily. As C.S. Lewis pointed out once, a man is mercenary who would marry for money, but if he marries for love, he is not. Why? Marriage is the proper reward for love. Similarly, love for God and others has a proper reward, which is God himself. The second thing that Jesus brings out here is, as a a fitting corollary, he adds, and you will be sons of the Most High, for he is kind to the ungrateful and evil. To become sons of the Most High is the Hebrew way of saying that we will be like the Most High, like God himself. Obviously not in the uh, way that he is deity, but in the way that he acts. When we love our enemies, we are imitating him. We are behaving the way God behaves. We are being like Christ and like the Father. When the Homer family took in Eric and Margot Honecker, they were like Christ. When we do good to our enemies, we are like Christ. When we bless those who curse us, we are like Christ. When we pray for those who abuse us, we are like Christ. And that likeness is our reward. The great question is, how can any of us ever live up to this ethic? How can we, in fact, love our enemies? In ourselves, of course, this is impossible. No one can love their enemy by an unaided act of the will. But praise God, through the new birth in Christ, we become, Peter tells us, partakers of the divine nature. That does not mean we become God, but that his divine nature is at work within us. Christ's love that has reached out to the poor. Christ's love that reached out to Judas has come to us. His love for sinners is ours. The key to Christ's moral teaching is Christ in us. This is why he's speaking to his disciples in this Sermon on the Plain. Because this message only applies to disciples of Jesus. It only applies to those who have been changed, indwelt by the Spirit of God. The key to Christ's moral teaching is Christ in us. Our ethic is radically Christocentric. Without Christ, this is all impossible. I read a story of a missionary family who took a furlough after an unusually tiring period of service on the mission field. The wife especially had been looking forward to this with great anticipation. For the first time, she was going to have a place of her own, a large townhouse with a a patio. She was very creative, and she made the patio the focus of her decoration. It was to be a place of rest. 
After a few months, some new neighbors moved in. The best word to describe them would be coarse. Loud music day and night, along with a constant flow of obscenities, constant loud arguments. And the peace that she had dreamt of for so long, the peace that she longed for, was totally disrupted. And she could see nothing good in these people. So she asked the Lord to help her be more loving, but all she got was more disgust. And when she tried to do what she knew to be right anyway, she was rejected. The crisis came when she returned home to discover that her neighbor's children had sprayed orange paint all over her beautiful patio. Walls, floors, everything. She was distraught, she was furious, she tried to pray, but found herself crying out, I cannot love them. I hate them. Missionaries aren't supposed to say things like that. But if you remember the psalm we read earlier, the psalmist said a lot of things that we think we're not supposed to say. Knowing she had to deal with the sin in her heart, she began to pray. A scripture came to her mind, Colossians 3.14, Beyond all these things put on love, which is the perfect, perfect bond of unity. And in her heart she questioned, Lord, how, how do I put on love with these people? And the only way she could picture it was like putting on a coat. So... That's what she determined to do. She was going to wrap herself up in the love of God. <laughs> and as a result, she began to experience the deeper life of Christ within her. She made a list of what she would do if she really loved her exasperating neighbors. And then she started to do what was on the list. Very practical way of approaching it. Sometimes we get way too spiritual. She sat down with a pencil and a paper and she wrote a list. She baked cookies. She offered to babysit for free. She invited the mother over for coffee. And she began to see them, not as enemies, but as people. She began to know and to understand them, and she began to see that they were living under tremendous pressures, and she began to love her enemies, and she did good to them without expecting anything back. The day came when they moved, and she wept. It's an unnatural love. It's an unconventional love that had captured her heart. If we consider ourselves to be true followers of Christ, that kind of love is what we're called to. To love our enemies, to truly love them. And so I, I would ask you to be as practical as that woman was. Ask yourself those questions. Ask yourself, are there some whom you hate 
Do you, through some perverse twist in your mind, imagine that that hatred is justified? Is there a Christian? There is no such thing as justified hate. Unless you're hating sin, but not when it comes to people. If you do find yourself rationalizing that way, your problem is not with anyone else. Your problem is with yourself. Your problem is with what's going on in here. Because you're claiming the name of Jesus, but he's not ruling your life. Are you doing good to those who hate you, or are you doing evil? If Christ is ruling in your heart, it will be good. Are you blessing those who curse you? If not, Christ is not on the throne. Are you praying for those who mistreat you? If so, you're being like your master. It's an impossible kind of life that Jesus describes. It doesn't come naturally. It doesn't reflect anything that we would see happening out in the world. It is supernatural. It originates in the indwelling Spirit of God. Love your enemies. Pray for those who persecute you. Do good to those who hate you. Bless those who curse you. In other words, be like Jesus. Father, make it so. It is so hard. Your word and your spirit tell us one thing and the world tells us another. The world would listen to what we've just seen in your word and say, boy, what a bunch of saps. They're just going to be taken advantage of. People are going to walk all over them. Maybe. That doesn't matter. We want to be your disciples. We want to be like your son. Make it so, Father. Overcome all our natural hesitancy so that we are capable of doing that which is unnatural that which requires the supernatural. And we will thank you in Jesus' name. Amen. singing now.